Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. This is a little different conversation than many that I have posted, and I like the difference because this is with my retired architect cousin, Stephen B. Rich who, as you will hear momentarily, has a lovely Maine accent. Unlike I, because my accent faded away living down here in Connecticut all these years. Well, as soon as I start hearing Steve's accent, mine starts to come back. You'll hear that too. But his practice is, and and as long as I've known him, it has been related to architecture particularly seeing things come together from a plan, seeing the actual work being done by a number of skilled practitioners. Uh, That always gave him pleasure, as you'll hear, again, you'll hear him say. But there's one point that he makes a couple of times that I'll underscore, and that is why his company succeeded. It was because they listened very, very carefully before anything was promised or done. Listen to every possible customer who was ordering the architectural work, every possible stakeholder for the site where the building would be built or or remodeled, taking into account how people were going to want to experience their buildings long after the work was done. So it was a lot of listening and then creative design and then getting out there and watching the work be done carefully so that the plans came together as promised. That's Stephen B. Rich, my wonderful cousin. Stephen B. Rich. Stephen Brewster Rich, I happen to know what the B stands for. Uh, I'll confess right up front, folks, uh, this is my cousin, Stephen B. Rich, who spent um, most of his uh, adult years up until retirement as an architect. And in fact, uh, I can remember when he went off to Syracuse University to major in architecture, started right there telling them about the family connection to Syracuse, that my great, great, great grandfather was one of the founders of Syracuse. And there was, um, is, I think, in one of the Syracuse uh, buildings in the Deke House, a Firon room. So I said, (laughs) listen, man, you go over there, you have any challenges with your grades, you have any problems, just mention my name. (laughs) So your dad was um, instrumental in getting me familiar with Syracuse when I was That's starting right. to look at architecture. Um, uh, and he was always a strong supporter of the school. And when I was, uh, when I first went off to interview for where to go, um, I interviewed at Syracuse and at Cornell. Mm-hmm. And Cornell, I went to Cornell first, and they said uh, they could give me some financial help if I made it through the first year, yeah. but they didn't have any help for me the first year. Yeah. And Syracuse, uh, the dean said, sure, what do you need? Let's go. So that was a quick decision. Um, 
and it was a great experience, really, really good experience. It, it was nice now, to carry on the rich Biron tradition. Well, it is, and, and there's another tradition, folks, that um, <laughs> we used to kid uh, because my uh, our shared grandfather, Ralph Rich Sr., uh, was one of the very first employees of American Standard, which makes uh, bathroom fixtures, essentially. And we used to say, uh, well, all of our all of our wealth is in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Steve's dad carried on his father's work and they sell they uh, sold for American Standard all over New England, northern New England. And many a story, uh, many uh, a laugh. Uh, and uh, we just grew up with my grandparents on one side and our aunt and uncle and Steve and his brothers, John, on the other. And uh, what a life we had on Parsons Road, Steve. And and uh, um, mom's sister and brother-in-law and right Billy up. across yeah. the street. Right. So we right. had four of the houses that were built in uh, 1949 to 1953. That's right. And yeah. uh, the... Uh, our three houses were built on a, on what was a skating pond uh, that was drained. And we got in a, a lot of bad looks when we moved in there from the kids who used to skate there. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> but every every spring, though, uh, when the snow melted, those, those, at least our backyard was a pond. <laughs> you know, unintentionally, the water would rise up along with the toads. Remember the toads? Well, I remember the toads, and I remember burning the field that became... Bob Port, Bob and Lucy Poor's house. That's right. And you could smell the frogs that were burnt <laughs> when the field was burnt. Like frogs and, laying. <laughs> yeah. uh, your dad and my dad combined our joint backyards mm -hmm. and made a skating pond for us. Yes, uh, I remember that now. For a number of years. And both Spencer and dad uh, would get home from a day's work and relaxation would be going out with a hose in the winter, just being not a Zamboni, but spraying on new ice for us for the next That's day. That's right. That's right. Oh man, yeah. you got a, You got a great memory. Well, here's why, folks. I wanted to start with Steve's memories that we both had, because I think one of the fund fundamentals of practice of any sort of practice is how you start out in life, with whom. And what are your influences? What are your inspirations, uh, aspirations? All of that has to start like you and I did, Steve, when we were, when we were just little kids. Uh, but I, I can remember now as I look at my family and, and yours and lots of others we grew up with, you almost begin to see by the time someone is six or seven or eight years old, sort of what they're going to be. Uh, not necessarily cowboy, you know, policeman, all that, but there's a something about what attracts a friend. You see, you know, they spend a lot of time asking questions about, for example, uh, how the poor house was being built. Bob poor, not it was not a poor house. Yeah. And I suspect you were out there not even knowing you're going to be an architect, but you were kind of watching and oh, look how they're framing it up. And remember that? Or, or going out with our other uncle, Alan, who was a master plumber, but also a contractor and watching him build his, his house and then starting to build others. Does that ring a bell? Oh, yes. Um, I can remember going over to visit uh, 
Brucey um, at Alan's house and just be amazed that Alan built that house. Uh, right. And they kept having kids and they kept adding on and they kept, it was always under construction. Our house was pristine and clean. Done and done. house was always kinetic. Yeah. And, and I, that was fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and, and then basically looking at the way that went, that was a family, a growing family. And, uh, they, there was a, there was when they would add that wing or whatever else, you'd go there and you'd feel the love. You'd feel the, the comfort, the way that house was designed. Yeah. And, uh, and I think there, there's the, there's the beginning of the architect's eye. I'm guessing that that's true. Let's sleep all the way up to the present. One of the reasons I thought I'd like to get back to Steve as a practitioner was that he has been retired a while as an architect, yet uh, there in his yard up there in Glenburn, uh, in, in their, serenity, in their uh, serendipity farm, is this handsome, handsome two bay garage <laughs> and i want to know first steve did you just I'm, I'm sure you just turned your back on it and said build it and i'll come look at it when it's done right <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> how much of you do you have in that garage in terms of your vision and not necessarily picking up the hammer but making that materialize well um first of all i could just step out on the front porch and watch uh and then walk 20 feet and interact with the guys who were actually doing the building uh and i had a great my neighbor's good friend and great residential contractor so i had a lot of trust and uh, i recognized the skill that i didn't have or the time that i didn't have that they had um but i gotta be honest um for all of the architecture that I've done, the most important thing has been the relationship with clients and trying to figure out what they want. And with this garage, I made the mistake of making it mine and not consulting with my partner, my wife. Uh-oh. And this, uh -oh. you would think I know with all of the client work I've done that she's probably my client. And yeah, uh, so you got to pack something in there from time to time. Well, and she has to live with it. Uh, it has to look right for her. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be something that we both agree we're going to spend money on. And yeah. I had to take down her favorite apple tree to put it where I wanted to put it. So we started with resentment. Yeah, you're still married. We're uh, still married. 50 some uh, years. So. <laughs> I, I started listening to her. Um, she, she made a really interesting observation. Said, she said, you know, when my grandfather was going to build a cottage on Cape Cod, he made a model for my grandmother so she could see. And when uh, my father uh, and mother were going to build a camp on Keyser Lake, you made a model of something so they could see. And when Logan and Jake were going to build a shed, uh, uh, a shed out back, you made a model so they could see. Where's my model? Oh, and, my Lord. And, and right and, there, I knew, well, we got some work to do. Oh. But the nice thing about it is every change that she encouraged or insisted on were really good steps forward. Yeah. And that's what makes successful architecture. You got to listen. 
Um, it's not just your ego. It's who's going to be using it, how they're going to feel about it, what do they do? And so, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I love it. It's great. Um, uh, it's uh, I've been 47 years without a garage, and now I have one. And you're in the snow country of of, of northern Maine, folks. He's not sitting down here in the, in the torrid uh, Connecticut uh, Southland. He's no. I'm looking yeah. out my third floor window, and there's snow all over the ground. Um, the stream out back's frozen. It's still uh, winter. Still, still winter. Stepping away. About that garage. Now, uh, one of the features that uh, I looked at because you posted a picture of it on on Facebook was these magnificent doors. Mm-hmm. What's the story behind those doors? Well, um, Valerie and I both didn't want to do just plain white raised panel go down to go down to, to Lowe's and get a couple yeah. of ones that you can fold up with an electric button on them you know why did you have to make such beautiful wooden doors well they're not wood oh uh, they're just a standard overhead door but uh i went shopping at you know just finding out what was available and i've learned that there are three grades of doors there's the basic contractor residential door there's a mid-level and then there's a high level. Yeah. And Valerie wanted the high level. And I didn't think we should spend that kind of money. So we settled on the mid-level. Uh-huh. But uh, it's one of those things where uh, we wanted it to be like a carriage house, cottage house. Right. Um, it wants this. We're going to see it every day. Um, First thing people will see when they drive in your driveway. When you come down, our, our driveway is 800 feet long, and you get to see it, uh, and it blends in with the house. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, the doors are just, I'm thrilled with them. I was a little apprehensive when they first were dropping them in place because the color seemed to fight the red of the, of the siding, which is a, a nod to my grandparents' um, dairy farm. Barn. up there in vermont yeah yeah but uh they they are the, these two doors are just delights um lovely oh well, i had a lot of touches uh now i want to take us back in time i can tell you um when my um, mother your aunt lois uh was living there in ocean view alone when my dad had passed away oh by the way that's not steve's cough they have like uh so many dogs that they basically are relegated to living on the third floor because the dogs yeah. occupy the other two and then uh they have two uh two donkeys we only have five dogs and we're <laughs> long-term babysitting uh another dog um John's former former wife's sister, my former sister-in-law, and her husband spend three months in Australia visiting their kids, ah. and we babysit for their doodles. So there you go. Yeah, that's uh, another story, another time about uh, your practice and Val's regarding uh, rescuing uh, uh, animals, uh, uh, also having this. Uh, barn not just barn barn but a place where um people can uh bring their horses and 
and board them. And it's just, just an amazing development over the years, Steve, of what you guys have done. But that garage kind of stands for, it's also got your shop upstairs, as I recall from your description. Actually, the shop is in the back of the main floor. And the upstairs is a storage loft, mm-hmm. but it's also Val's journaling room. Oh. We don't have a basement in this house. It's a slab on grade. So I've, it, it's going to be our basement on the second floor. And uh, at the end, we put in a pair of windows that look out over the pasture in the front driveway. Mm. And it's going to be Val Shishet. That was part of the compromise. I get the shop downstairs. She gets the she shed upstairs. That's so wonderful. That, that's going to work out well. I, I can't say she said politely, so I'm not going to repeat what you just said. She sat in the she shed. <laughs> Back to my mother, living in Falmouth, little library near where she lived, uh, old. And one day when I went up to look after her, she said, oh, you've got to come. we got to go down this road. Uh, that's Steve's worked on that library. Remember? Yes, I do. She was so proud. She said, well, I said, well, let's go in. She said, oh, I, oh, come on, let's go. And she went in and she looked around and she said, oh, it's just, this is what I think a library should should be if i felt better about myself i'd come up here and spend every day and i said well why don't you (laughs) but it was a wonderful treat so tell the story about that library um that was probably the second or third public library i had designed um jerry dinsmore do you remember jerry dinsmore of course i do uh he was close friend of your dad's yep very very good friend um taught english in i'm not sure it was freeport of falmouth and was the dock master at handy boat in the summer yep um he was the one who asked me to come down and interview for it because uh, he trusted what i could do and he wasn't really happy with what um the building committee was trying to put together Mm -hmm. so i came down and they were interviewing three different architectural firms and we got the contract. Um, one of the first things I realized that I didn't know, and this is an important part of of how architecture, I think, should evolve. Um, first thing to do is listening. You got to listen to the building committee, and mm. the building committee really should be assembled as a as a for a library, a cross section of the town. And the only part of Falmouth I had ever seen was the foreside. That's right, the rich boat. And the way to Handy Boat with all of the really nice big um, mansions and small Mick mansions. Yep. I never had gotten into the back hills, the foothills, the lowlands, um, which is, at the time, was populated with a lot of trailers. That's right. And the building committee was a cross-section of uh the lowlands and the foreside and getting both sides to agree and feel comfortable and develop ownership was the biggest challenge the biggest challenge but building that's it build it after that it's go, runs runs smooth but you're uh, that's an that's a crucial point yeah that it, it may be uh, a corporate 
uh, client you're working with, but still there's a matter of collaboration and consensus because you're, you're not only spending money, it's permanent. <laughs> you're spending not your own money. That's right. Uh, somebody else's. One of the, at that time, that was back in the 80s, um, one of the common debates, particularly for public libraries, was air conditioning. Yeah. And the the Foreside group was insisting that we have air conditioning. And the the lowland group, lowland is not a good word, the, the, the flatland yeah. flat um, really didn't want to spend tax dollars on air conditioning for the Foreside group. So what we ended up doing <laughs> was putting in the equipment without the chilling units so that it could be added via private fundraising. And it was within about a year. Well, see, that's so, a great idea. Yeah. And believe me, those folks who lived out there in the flatland, they don't mind getting a little cool either. In fact, there aren't many hot days in the summer, but I suspect that that was the place to come. And, 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 the, and first, the, the first library I ever did was the addition to the Old Town Library up here. Mm -hmm. And the benefactor, the major donor was Tabitha King. Everyone That's thought it was Stephen King developing funny. a library for Old Town. And she, first time I met her, the first thing she said to me was, keep in mind, this is not Stephen's library, it's mine. It's <laughs> my money and it's my town. And that's what it means, you gotta listen uh, and pay attention to your client. Yeah. She was the client, not Stephen. Yeah. And he always was to take a back seat, even when we had the dedication. He sat in the audience and she was up up uh, just you know doing what she always does, which is good public service. Yeah, and she's written some fine novels too. Yeah, so yeah. they're no she they're no slouches. This the King family yeah. and their kids, I guess, are all quite well. Yeah well-grounded too. Um, now I want to flip to one more build uh, because uh, I'm watching my clock and mm -hmm. yours. Uh, my sister Judy and you were close, very close in age as, as was John and your brother. And so they would walk up our road, carefully cross Ocean Avenue and go to their elementary school. The name of which I don't even remember anymore. The Baxter what was School. The Baxter School, named after the mayor. Percival P. Baxter. Percival P. Mayor, mayor of Portland and governor of Maine. What? That guy got a lot of attention. He got a bridge name. No, you know, he, he got around, but um, he had a he whole donated, island named after him. donated the money for the boulevard. That's right, Baxter Boulevard. But there was Baxter School, and you guys would walk up there with your lunch boxes, an apple, a sandwich, and one of your mother's wonderful cookies. <laughs> she was a great cook, great Lord baker. And so that was where you were until you went, went on to junior high. And now years later, you got the contract to tear that school down. Oh, and put a new school up <laughs> there. I should have mentioned that part. What was that experience like? Well, some it, years after you graduated from the sixth grade there or the fifth grade or however long you got to go. We we had dad had an eight millimeter film of the the walk from the old Heseltine school as the whole. Oh, that's right. 
hand in hand down the sidewalk and up the driveway to this new school that opened up in probably 19... 50 something. 57, 56, somewhere yeah, in there. We were be about right. Yeah. And Percival P. Baxter was there for the ribbon cutting. Oh, I didn't and know that. It, it was in the spring. There was no snow. It was warm. And everyone was kind of uh, not casually dressed, but he was the only one with a heavy wool black <laughs> um, uh, wool overcoat and a and a uh like a i don't know it's not a fedora but a, a formal hat a serious hat yeah a serious hat and i always liked that film i can't find it now which is kind of too bad but that was the start of the school brand new um when portland was going through uh some challenges with the distribution of students as the neighborhoods had grown subdivisions had grown mm -hmm. there was a push to add an addition to Hesel to to nathan clifford school yeah my nathan school clifford school was my father and your mother's yeah elementary, mine too elementary right. school. till we moved to parsons road that's where and that so, was an old school when i went there it was an old school and it was uh, a big public debate um they went through two or three referendums to to rehab the school and and um, they were having a problem. So they put out a request for proposal for services to do a study for the feasibility of, of rehabbing that school or doing something else. And I came down and interviewed for that. Uh, they selected us, I think, because we were good at what we do, but we weren't from the area. We were from away, so they were. We were a compromise. We weren't. We we're going to be impartial. But you weren't a Boston firm either, which would have doubled their costs before they could blink. Yep. yep. <laughs> so we did a study, and uh, lo and behold, the recommendation came to that we put forward was to tear down my old school and build a new school on that site. Um, and that proposal was accepted. So then we interviewed for the new building and we got that contract. So, so whatever I, happened to Nathan Clifford, did they kind of leave it as was? Uh, it went to, our recommendation was to make it into some housing and it was rehabbed into housing. Well, that well, that's good. And well, that's a good yep. story there too. Yep. There was a statue of Nathan in the little auditorium there if you, if you remember uh, you mm -hmm. probably surveyed the interior of the school yeah. i can still yeah. remember it yeah. and uh and he was what was he famous for i have no idea i think he was i think, in I, time, but I I think he protested something uh, like give me freedom or give me death kind of thing but anyway that that's a great story now i mean because again i'm watching a clock uh the vision for that you tore down your old school that you actually were the first to set foot in which is kind of an interesting historical check uh on on uh, when i first went story. in the school as a kid the gym was huge and all of the appliances were bigger than me and brand new in college i went back there to vote one one year and the, i could almost jump up and hit the rafters uh, or the the, the bar <laughs> joists and the cabinet that I had to stand on my tiptoes to 
get the drinking fountain was down at my knees. There you go. So my evolution, uh, it was a long time in study. And then we tore it down. Um, it's, it was a really successful rebuild. It was what the community wanted. Um, I think it's still functioning well. Uh, we were able to do some outdoor learning space. Remember the pond out back that we used okay. to skate at? Yes, I do. And the baseball field? Yes. Uh, where we used to play baseball? Mm-hmm. Well, one of those areas, the pond wasn't there anymore. But we built a, an outdoor classroom um, for the three months in the fall and the two months in the spring when school is there and we don't have snow. Um, and that worked out well. Uh, and it's also a great just community asset. Thing. What did you name that? What did they name that school, Steve? Well, they didn't want to call it the Baxter School, right? Um, which I thought was kind of too bad. Um, I would have liked Baxter too. Uh, but it's just the Ocean Avenue Elementary School. Okay. But as I recall, it also had a theme to it like freedom or something that was global in the sense, but being that little school in Portland, Maine, I recall this, that story. And maybe that's what my mom told me about it. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember that. I just remember in theming, um, a lot of what they wanted to start doing was multi-age instruction. So we were yeah. set the interior up where they could blend um, adjacent um, classes and, and grades with a common area in the middle that was flexible. And I, I, I think it's working out well. That's what it was. It was, uh, it was a, a course that met, met my philosophy and coincidentally Peter Vale's philosophy. We believe that learning is, uh, is, is a com- completely uh, done in, uh, in conjunction with whoever else is available. And if you made more, ages and more types of instruction available in moments of time while you're doing it versus being kept in one box for the whole day with Miss Fudge, uh, it would be better learning. And now the last part of Steve's story, and then I want you to have a moment to cap it on. I believe your niece, John's daughter's niece, went to that school. Um, Yamara? Sally went to the school. Sally did. Okay, John. Yeah. But Sally did, and uh, her daughter went to it. So we had one, two, three generations of of kids go through that that local neighborhood school. And when we were young, I don't think we took lunch boxes to school. We would come home for lunch. We would walk home for lunch and then walk. Oh, you're right. It was that close. I was the one who had to drag that lunchbox down to coming school and then up to the junior high. Yeah. But uh, what a treat that was. Yeah. It was. For you guys. You used to come great. home, there'd be a hot bowl of soup there for you and mm-hmm. toasted cheese sandwich. Man, yep. man oh, man. We did. Well, we did the um, Brewer Community School. It was a, a combining the elementary and middle schools when we were talking about theming mm-hmm. and we created three wings that separated the, the K three, four, six, and seven, eight um, groupings. And we did each wing themed after the history of Brewer. So there was 
uh, one that was both in coloration and dioramas, um, ice harvesting from the 17 yeah. and 1800s. Yeah. Uh, another was brick making. All of the bricks around this area were made along the, the Penobscot River. Mm-hmm. And another was boat building. And it was really well received to have the history of Brewer um, embedded um, and integrated into each level of the, the school physically and, and contextually. That's wonderful. And that's a nice thing of what architecture can do. It can remind you where you've been and show you where you got to go. Stephen Brewster, Rich, I'm very proud of you. I'm uh, delighted that we've had a chance to uh, bring you into the practice podcast. And uh, it'll be fun to write up a, a way of featuring this uh, with uh, a quote or two that I'll be taking out of this conversation and weaving it into my book on practice as a way of being. and. This uh, gentleman is still, to this moment, being a good man who loves to see buildings do the right thing for people. Is that my friend and cousin Steve Rich? Yeah. yeah. I, I want to tell you a little story that um, you might, yeah, I don't think, I know you won't remember the story, but it'll bring back some memories. My first exposure to architecture was when Papa, when I was five years old, took me up to Woodford's church for the cornerstone setting of the new church to replace the church across the road that burnt Great. down. Church across the street, yeah. And I can remember sitting there in the chair with him. Uh, um, I think everyone who was else else was in school, and I was in in what was pre-K, was sub-primary. Mm-hmm. But I had the morning off, and he took me up. And that cornerstone was the biggest thing I had ever seen. Um, and they lifted it in place. And I always liked that. So for every public building that I did, I would encourage my clients to put a cornerstone in. And they, the thing that I've learned is that not everyone looks forward. Uh, sometimes it, it's hard to get beyond the immediacy of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I would say 50% of my clients would invest in a cornerstone. You had to have it made. It was unique. It wasn't something you buy at Lowe's. That's right. Um, and I could tell the people who wanted to have a building that was going to last for decades to a century uh, versus people who are more interested in solving a, sol- solving a problem today uh, and didn't want to spend any money on anything that wasn't going to address that. So, yeah, well, that's a great Papa. symbol, isn't it? The Papa was a great, great inspiration for me. And and he, uh, having spent all those years uh, helping contractors make decisions and and build things, and my dad, who was kitchen designer in his last phase of his career, built to last. Yep. With it's pride. There you go. Well, yep. thank you, Steve. This has been great. It's it's been fun to to chat, catch up on some things, um, uh, share a little bit of, little bit of insight and mm-hmm. uh, help spread a little of the passion that I have for things that uh, are worth working for. Yeah, thank you. Great, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. 
If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, oh, how could I have forgotten? Our digital book, On Practice as a Way of Being, is now available. You'll find it online at www.mylibrary.world. I worked on that book after Peter passed away, and I think you will find it a unique and very, very mobile reading experience, since it's wherever your screen is in hand or at hand.